0: Okay, so for the next of the uh, Catapult High Performance Practitioner interviews, uh, I'm delighted that we've got Nick Levitt with us. Nick's the Talent Identification Manager for the Football Association. So, because I don't know a great deal about talent identification, I think it'd be useful if, just in the first instance, Nick, could you just give us a brief overview as to what what the role actually
1: involves? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I wouldn't say I was an expert in talent identification either. I'm not, I'm not sure on the word expert, really. But um, I can tell you about what I do. Um, yeah. So the role at the moment really is, is a couple of areas. One is around supporting the department with the selection of players for international teams. So we have international teams from 15s to seniors. Um, and I work within a team of people that, are, that help train and develop our England scouts that will go out and select the players for the squad. Uh, of which the national coach will then select the squad and the other remit is around education and trying to gather and collate evidence from football, from different sports from business and other areas to help us understand the landscape a little bit more and and develop this into um, an education pathway for scouts and coaches to go on as well Because I'm I'm guessing, I mean, my experience
0: in football, when I've gone along and I've watched the under 18s and under 16s, under 15s games, there's a whole host of people stood on the touchline who might be ex-players or might be interested parties who uh, are scouts, talent ID people from other clubs. I'm guessing the whole sort of talent identification landscape is is evolving, and there's much more to it now than just stood on the sideline watching a game, for example.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think you know for. For decades there's been a coaching course pathway with knowledge and qualifications and we've never really had the same for scouts you know, there's, been, there's never been a need to kind of professionalize the industry so that's really what the hope of this is and yeah it's a lot more um, a lot more to it than just standing on the side watching yeah. a game now um, and what we're trying to do through this education process is help people understand the soft skills and building relationships and communication skills and uh, understanding your own Um, personal unconscious bias that might influence the way you view things as well as understanding a little bit about talent and a little bit about the rules and regs that you have to operate in. And I'm guessing, I suppose, going back to this uh, this view
0: that I've got of this one person stood on the line, and you mentioned there this unconscious bias, uh, certainly people will go to a game and I'm guessing they're, they're looking for specific things generally speaking and an awful lot of players potentially could slip through the net
1: well, typically, the, the, the things that they look for are the th- traits that they value highly. So if you were a hard-working centre midfielder, you will value the hard-working centre midfielders above the tippy-tappy winger that plays out wide because it's, it's a trait of human beings, effectively. We like people like us. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's part of the, the education process, that recognise your own bias and uh, understand the impact that that has when you're viewing a game and you're watching a group of kids playing. Um, and you're right, yeah, I think a lot of those kids might have been missed because we've applied our own view of the world and we had one of our England scouts, he's a teacher, always got a crisp white shirt on, very structured and logical and organised, went to watch a game, 17-year-old centre-forward, he'd been sent to watch by the first-team manager. And he's turned up at the game and uh, the forward has got into a bit of a fight with their centre-half in the first half. In the second half he's had a row with the referee and then he's had a round with his own teammates. Then he got the ball, beat four players, hit the post. Flashes of stuff. And uh, he got back into the car after the game and he phoned the manager and said, no, not for us. Attitudes are nightmares all over the place. And what he'd done is he'd applied his model and view of values and beliefs on the world. And he missed Stan Collymore, purely (laughs) because he didn't align with what he thought a model professional should look like. And he said that was a real eye opener for him around his own bias and beliefs. And you end up missing a top quality player. So,
0: the role that you've taken on then, obviously, is with the, the national governing body, with, it, with the FA, and understandably, what you're hoping to do is to influence talent identification uh, throughout and all the way down. And is it a kind of a top-down approach that you're taking? So try and get, if you like, the FA's house in order, in order to influence what goes on at a club
1: level? Yeah, I think we need to do both, and I think the... Uh, so I lead on the foundation phase as my area of expertise, so I'm very much at the bottom with the little ones, But but also working in with the grassroots as well. I think the professional game select their players from a sample because there's already a bias in grassroots because somebody's mum or dad has said, right, Chris, you're in or you're out. And it's often based on whether you're bigger, stronger, faster, and you can help me win a game. And you will probably get more game time. So professional clubs are already picking from a bit of a bias. So we're starting to educate the grassroots game about making sure every kid gets on the pitch and equal game time and rotating positions and all the things that will probably then help a professional club by the time they get into that pathway. But equally, I think you're right, we have to make sure that we are cutting edge and leading in terms of what we do at the national level. And and that's some of the work that we're doing around helping our talent reporters understand some of the psychosocial traits, being able to recognize these in the game. Because if we think from evidence that these are important, we need to make sure that we know what we're talking about rather than just the technical, tactical, physical things that you can see where people, certainly football people, seem to be a lot more comfortable so yeah, it has to be both ends and make sure that we we raise the standards of the industry across the whole and you're saying that your
0: principal area of focus is the foundation phase which as we know it seems that uh, the age at which kids are getting signed up by clubs is becoming younger and younger. And I'm, you know, I'm aware of clubs that have six-year-olds and seven-year-olds attached to them. Can you realistically spot potential in a kid of that age? Are there, are there telltale signs there that would discriminate between that kid and, and the rest of his cohort at a six, six or seven years of age?
1: So, somebody said to me, there was a head of recruitment at a club, that I could tell you a professional player at seven. I could tell you who a liar is <laughs> uh, and how many you know uh, but then I'm also interested in how many they get wrong yeah, because they never tell you that bit oh well I saw whoever it is at seven and I knew they were going to be a pro right now how many other people have you said that about that you got wrong no you can't no the fact that they're playing football probably gives them a little bit of an advantage over somebody that perhaps likes poetry and no interest in sport that they're actually there doing it no I think The biggest thing that we're kind of encouraging clubs is to keep the base as broad as possible as long as possible make sure kids are having fun with their mates make sure they keep coming back you've probably got a better chance if they keep coming back than if they don't so that's what we're really trying to educate people with but it's incredibly difficult to tell
0: and I suppose um, and maybe being a little bit controversial I guess that an awful lot of this, recruiting kids in at an earlier and earlier age, is actually born out of fear from clubs who possibly uh, are located in environments where there may be three or four other clubs that can recruit that same kid. So rather than actually looking at it from the point of view of recruiting somebody who may develop, it's purely and simply in the first instance just to prevent that kid going somewhere else where they may flourish.
1: Uh, absolutely right. It's, it's a competitive industry. and. Um I've certainly been in and around it when people have said, well, if we don't sign in, they will down the road. Yeah. I'm like, well, we've only seen the kid for two weeks. We don't know anything about him. Well, we, we've got to do it. Really? And again, I don't think we reflect back on those to see what ones we got right and which ones we got wrong. How many snapshot decisions actually became the right ones? But the younger you go, you're going to have to accept you're going to make a lot more mistakes.
0: So assuming that we've got these kids locked into the club, at whatever age that might be. Um, Something that seems to have gained an awful lot of publicity as of late um, is this whole whole 10,000-hour concept. So, obviously, it's been born out of, bizarrely, a study with musicians, but nevertheless, it seems to have been adopted quite widely across sport, this whole idea that there is a minimum amount of deliberate contact needed in order to create excellence uh, in an athlete. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that as as an expert in talent
1: ID and development. I've never been on a pitch with a kid that's gone through 9,999 and then by the end of that session they suddenly become this elite, all-conquering, world-class athlete. It doesn't happen and quantity of what you do is important to a degree but also is quality and also your genetics, your DNA, the people that you're around with, the environment that you live in, your ability to learn. If I can learn a lot faster than you, why do I need 10,000 hours? I can shortcut that process because of the way I I take things on. With the greatest will in the world, I could probably do 50,000 hours of basketball practice, and there's something that's gonna inhibit me playing in the NBA. Now, the fact that I'm six foot seven might give me an opportunity, but the fact that I'm five foot nine Mm. Me- means it's a lot hard, not impossible, but a lot harder. So, yeah, there's, there's a whole host of factors that, um, that mean that that study with violinists, you can't lift it and apply it in the context of what we do, especially a team game when there's a lot of moving parts and relationships and opinions. And it, it's, uh, yeah, it's a nice rule that Malcolm Gladwell developed on the back of Ericsson's work, um, but I'm loath to say it absolutely applies in football and yet I'm
0: guessing that there's been some kind of acknowledgement that perhaps and this is going back a few years to the introduction of the p so an acknowledgement that perhaps we're not um, exposing our young players to to enough football because one of the things that the P introduced was uh, it was almost a a universal prescription for the amount of time that uh, they wanted players to have grass under the feet uh, which which was an interesting move I mean the EPPP's been with us a few years now and I'd be interested in your reflections on whether or not that particular, that specific um, rule has in any way been successful, is it too
1: early? Yeah I think it's probably too early to tell, Um, is there value in kids doing more than they were doing previously? Yes probably, however as I said there's a quality and a quantity bit to it, the bit that I think in the early days now I think they've, they've shifted a little bit on. Was the hours only counted for time on the grass? Yeah. Now, reality if, if you're a first team player and I'm 15 and you're my mentor and we're sat in a classroom talking about stuff, now that's of massive value for me and my learning as a young player. Yeah. Now, why doesn't that, that's deliberate practice, why doesn't it count towards these hours or time doing performance analysis or time doing other sports? All of this goes into developing that young athlete and that young player so I think that they've shifted a little bit on that now um, I think the um, the notion of doing a little bit more yeah absolutely I don't think people would disagree that it would help but equally for some players it might help for some players it might not so yeah it's, um, it's a lot more complex than just saying right let's just do a load more stuff because yes. if I do a load more stuff with coaches that aren't very good I might have been better doing it on my own and certainly you know, things that I've
0: witnessed I mean people haven't the, the the whole idea has evolved a little bit whereby, okay, they're, they're maybe not spending these requisite hours on the grass, but then they're actually saying to the S&C coaches and the fitness coaches, okay, we've got three hours this week to fill in, find something for them to do. And clearly that, over, uh, in the long term, is something that potentially could be
1: counterproductive. Well, it's just, it's just not a linear pathway that you have mm. to tick X amount of hours every week. You know, uh, we still don't really understand the massive benefits of informal play yep. um, letting kids sort it out for themselves, implicit learning because we can't measure it and quantify it and stick it on a graph actually it's hugely important for kids, hugely important just for the for the social outcomes of them sorting it out amongst themselves and conflict resolution and that was a goal, no it hit the post and no we come off the tree and went in, them sorting all that stuff out for is massively important yep. and Just because we can't then do it in the formal setting, we don't measure it, but there's massive value to it. So it's quite complex in that sense. It's a pretty, pretty big responsibility that you've taken
0: on in the sense that uh, you are now the leader for the Football Association, the principal sport in the United Kingdom in terms of the identification, providing mechanisms for identification and development of talent. Is there... Somewhere or some sport elsewhere in the world that you would say, actually, there's so, there's, there are people doing these things better than us at the moment. Is there somewhere we can go to learn a little bit to, to make us better at our roles?
1: Yeah, thankfully, the, the, um, the department that I sit in that kind of look at, you know, five, five to seniors across Talent ID, we're, we're very open-minded to this. Now, the challenge that we've got at the moment is everybody's coming to us because there's no, there's no Talent ID pathway of courses, certainly to the extent that we've got uh, well, level one's almost there. Level two's running. Level fours running. Level five's well on the way for technical directors. Yes. So, not many people have this depth of, of knowledge around talent ID that we do. But it's about making sure that we are open-minded. So, last week I was at the Brit School looking at what they do there in terms of you know the the, the talent that they turn out. So, if you looked at one class in the Brit School that had Adele, Leona, Lewis, Jesse, J—80 80 million albums sold worldwide. They'd be a pretty high-performing academy in in football terms. Um, So I think it's making sure that we're open-minded to go and learn lessons from those kind of people, as well as other sports where we can. Rugby do a lot of great stuff. I think they're probably the leading lights about understanding the person the best, and some of the psychosocial things, and I think they're really good at, at making it real turning it into what goes on, on the grass, off the pitch at England training camps, to develop them to better talent at the end of it. They're probably the best ones, I think, at the moment. Uh, There's good people around the world, whether it's um, academics or odd individuals, but uh, the beauty of this is that nobody's got the answer. And I think what what you're saying is actually we need to be
0: open-minded about our own definition of what performance is. It ain't just on the football field. It's, it's much, much broader than that. Absolutely, totally agree. Nick, thanks very much for your time. I know you're a busy person.
1: Ah, uh, we all fascinating
0: are. stuff. And thanks again. No problem. Cheers. Thank you.